It is a great privilege to be here, so thank you to the Pride Museum and thank you all um, as well for coming to hear me speak this evening. Um, there will be no point in my talking to an empty room, so thank you all for making the trip up to Hampstead um, tonight. Um, and finally, I'd also like to say welcome to anybody who is watching this on a podcast. Uh, this talk will be available um, on a podcast in about a week or so's time. So if you're watching it on the podcast, thank you for the download. Okay, I would like to start my talk um, by addressing some of the misconceptions that have come to my attention when people think about fashion and psychoanalysis. Uh, misconception about fashion and psychoanalysis, number one, you can psychoanalyse people according to what they wear. You can't. Misconception about fashion and psychoanalysis, number two, you can psychoanalyse designers by analysing their creations. You can't. It is not my intention to put people on the couch on the basis of what they wear or what they design. However much we might wish that we could diagnose people on the basis of their sartorial choices, it is in fact impossible to do so. Marie Bonaparte tried putting um, someone's work on the couch in her 1949 reading of Edgar Allan Poe, and it was of limited success. Ernest Jones' Hamlet and Oedipus, also from 1949, was similarly flawed. Fashion is not an analysande, any more than a literary text is, or a character in a play. I'm mindful of the genuine and integral differences between living, breathing patients on the one hand and creative forms on the other. As the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once said, psychoanalysis can only be applied in the proper sense of the term as a treatment and thus to a subject who speaks and listens. So what my talk this evening will do is it will read instances of fashion in a psychoanalytic frame in order to draw out some possible interpretations of, the most, of some of the most profoundly challenging and recalcitrant objects and images of recent times. Um, now this brings me to my third misconception about fashion. Misconception about fashion and psychoanalysis number three, fashion is synonymous with shopping. It's not. I should explain before I go much further what I mean when I say fashion. Um, fashion is not necessarily a matter of expressing one's identity, um, nor is it merely about trends or a matter of business and products and branding and economics and such like, although obviously there are many instances where these issues are very much in evidence. To my mind, fashion is primarily concerned with innovation in the surface decoration of the body and the wider social and cultural responses to this innovation. More importantly, it's the wearer 
and the act of wearing that are central to fashion. Fashion is not a collection of singular items. A garment is not an independent, fully formed object that is then superimposed on the blank canvas of a woman's body. On the contrary, fashion comes into being only when it's in the process of actually being worn. When it's not being worn, it's something else. It's a product to be sold, it's a museum piece, it's even laundry. It needs to be worn. Now, besides its relation to the human body, fashion is also very closely associated with femininity. Um, Baudelaire wrote The Painter of Modern Life, and in The Painter of Modern Life, we see the first identification of this association between fashion and femininity. And Baudelaire tied the relationship between fashion and femininity to modern culture. He identifies a shift in fashion from its role in revealing social distinctions predicated on class to distinctions predicated on gender instead. He sees fashion as synonymous with the feminine and with beauty. He sees beauty, femininity and fashion as being bound together and contingent on one another. Now this association remains even today as the writer Anne Hollander points out, she said that men's fashion is an acknowledged subset and has not scarcely any of the fame and resonance attached to fashion. And she writes fashion there with a capital F. Now fashion is unique in this. Usually where cultural forms um, are gendered, and I'm talking about literature, art, film, music, this sort of thing, they tend to default to the masculine with the feminine as a subset within that form. Um, there is literature and there is women's writing, for instance. There are artists and there are women artists. I have a book, the top 100 female artists of the 20th century. There is no companion volume the top 100 male artists, because art is assumed to be male and women are a subsection within that. Fashion alone defaults to the feminine. Now femininity is usually understood to refer to the attributes of woman, whatever that may be. And certainly that's the context in which Baudelaire uses it. However, with regard to fashion, I would like to suggest that it can be, femininity can be understood in slightly broader terms. Certainly it pertains to feminine subjects, usually, but not exclusively, women. It pertains to and is contingent upon the body, in particular the female body. And following from the work of the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, it follows an impossible and contradictory logic. Now, these three definitions of femininity allow for a reading of fashion that will anchor fashion to the category of the feminine while also rejecting any notion of the feminine as being in any way biologically or anatomically determined or else reliant on social codes for its meanings. Now, fashion is too dependent on existing social and psychic structures to ever really present a realistic or viable challenge to them. 
and it's therefore quite difficult to claim that fashion is radical or revolutionary. Fashion is not likely to change the world. I do believe, however, that fashion is inherently seditious, and it can and does subvert from within, offering profound challenges to existing structures within the terms that are available to it. Now, the point where fashion most clearly manifests ideas about femininity is also the point where fashion is at its most innovative, its most provocative, its most challenging, the moments that demonstrate its disruptive potential. Thus, I define fashion as a creative form that is realised on the body and that articulates the feminine in innovative, disruptive and seditious ways. So, why fashion and psychoanalysis? Well, until comparatively recently, there were only two books that directly addressed the question of fashion and psychoanalysis. Uh, J.C. Flugel's Psychology of Clothes from 1930 and Edmund Bergler's Fashion and the Unconscious from 1953. Flugel employs Freudian concepts of narcissism to explain the gender specificity of fashion and its association with women and homosexuals. His very literal application of psychoanalysis to dress formed the basis of his belief that wearing clothes is neurotic, irrational, and indicative of one's hostility to one's own body. Flugel concludes that the careful application of psychoanalytic principles to the minutiae of everyday life will ultimately lead to the rejection of clothing altogether, and he proposed that advanced civilizations will eventually go naked, marvelling at the primitiveness of the clothing that we used to think was essential. Edmund Bergler emphasised the erotic potential of dress, but his understanding of eroticism um, was quite a curious one. Um, Bergler claimed that fashion is a hoax perpetrated on women by misogynist homosexuals and its creations are elaborate tricks that are sold to women as fashion but which are designed in fact to induce discomfort for the wearer and ridicule from onlookers. He argues that heterosexual man is complicit in this plot saying that clothing is also a masculine invention that protects women from the that protects men, I beg your pardon, from the sight of the female body and recollections of Oedipal desire for the mother and castration anxiety that the female body provokes. Bergman's conclusion assures us that normal sexual relations are conducted between a married man and woman and the increase in what he calls neurotic sex, which is all other sorts of sex, is due to the aphrodisiac qualities of women's clothing. In his final analysis, he sees women as morally suspect and a danger to wet to men, as well as being the passive, mindless dupes of hateful gays. That was in 1953. Now, clearly, both Flugel and Bergler's formulations leave more than a little to be desired. But their observation that dress and eroticism are inextricably intertwined is, in my view, exactly right. 
What is an issue in both Flugel and Bergler is that in these early accounts, they treat the erotic as in some way symptomatic of psychic or social failure. Eroticism, though, is neither neurotic nor irrational. It is, in fact, an essential feature of psychic life. Um, this evening, I will draw principally on themes of desire, that is central to psychoanalysis, and I will use this to frame my discussion of selected examples of fashion. And for the benefit of the psychoanalytic specialists in the audience, um, I should point out that I do recognise that the term desire is specifically associated with Jacques Lacan, and I do myself come from a Lacanian background, um, although I'm sure we can all agree that um, we can agree that the that eroticism is central to psychoanalysis and can be seen in various forms in all branches of the discipline. Now I'd like to start this talk, this part of my talk at least, by saying that whatever else fashion may be, it's not a fetish. The apparent irrationality of dress and desire has been understood by some fashion commentators as being a form of fetishism. The term fetish has been used by critics to denote the erotic relationship that exists between individuals and items of clothing. Notably, those items of clothing most closely associated with popular constructions of feminine sexuality, such as corsets, stiletto heels, that sort of thing. That said, when the term is fetish is deployed in this way, it means something very different to its psychoanalytic definition. The art historian David, David Kunzel um, has distilled the concept of fetishism down to mean an individual, or this is a direct quote from Kunzel, um, he means it's an individual or, direct, or group redirection of the sexual instinct onto an aspect of dress. The costume historian Valerie Steele is only a little more specific than that, and she defines fetishism as loosely referring to the objectification of the female body a type of varied sexuality involving the use of specific stimuli for sexual arousal. The word fetishism has become such common currency that now it references anything vaguely sexy and stroke or irrational. And it constructs the fetishizer as in some way feminized through the relationship that they have with their fetish. However, the relationship between dress and desire, discussed thus far in fashion theory under the rubric of fetishism, is in fact feminine sexuality that both the designers who work I, whose work I plan to discuss this evening allude to when they discuss the place of feminine sexuality in their respective design philosophies. Rather than being aberrant, as the use of the term fetish would suggest, Sexuality is integral to the general experience of subjectivity, albeit differently negotiated depending on one's subject position. And I suggest that fashion, particularly haute couture, can be understood in terms of asymmetric Lacanian notions of sexuality rather than specifically Freudian theories of perversion that construct sexualities around the basis of normal and perhaps more commonly non-normal um, sexual desires and behaviours. 
Now the designers I'm going to talk about this evening are John Galliano and Alexander McQueen. Um, There we are, John Galliano and Alexander McQueen. John Galliano graduated from Central St. Martins um, with a first class honours degree in fashion. Um, he produced a collection inspired by the French Revolution called Les Incroyables. Um, that was bought in its entirety and sold by the London fashion boutique Browns. He moved to Paris in the early 1990s, in 1995, was made head designer at LM LVMH company Givenchy. Two years later he was promoted and moved to Christian Dior and became head designer there in 1997. He was awarded British Designer of the Year in 1987, 1994, 1995 and 1997. In 1997 he shared the award with Alexander McQueen. In 2001 he was awarded a CBE in Queen's Birthday Honours List. Alexander McQueen trained as a tailor after leaving school and Pet spent time working in Milan before he returned to London and studied again at Central St Martins. He graduated in 92. He succeeded Galliano as head designer of Givenchy in 96. His tenure there unfortunately was marked by controversy and hostility towards his employers and his contract was eventually terminated in 2001. He won the British Designer of the Year Award three times between 1996 and 2003. In 2000 he was awarded a CBE as well as being named International Designer of the Year at the Council of Fashion Designer Awards and he sadly committed suicide in 2010. McQueen and Galliano are of particular significance to any investigation of contemporary couture for a number of reasons. They are both highly acclaimed couturiers <coughs> who, like the father of couture Charles Worth, trained in England and then left London to work in Paris. Both have produced work that very pointedly interrogates the very notion of femininity. And in this regard, Galliano in particular was, until comparatively recently, widely acknowledged by critics, fashion editors, museum curators, um, as the heir apparent to the couture tradition that was started by Worth and re-articulated by Christian Dior. More importantly though, both of them became notorious for producing couture that could be said to be avant-garde. Their creations provoked approbation and applause in equal measure and they've both produced work that raised the question, but is it fashion? In the same way that avant-garde would provoke the question, but is it art? McQueen and Galliano were so closely intertwined in terms of their work and their careers that it's impossible to discuss one without referencing the other. They represent, for want of a better expression, two sides of the same coin. And where they explore similar themes, such as femininity, history, and so on, they do so in oppositional ways. I mentioned earlier that I would be drawing on Lacan's, Jacques Lacan's idea about asymmetric um, sexuality. There are two key contradictions in Lacan's thinking on feminine sexuality that we can draw on when we talk about haute couture, and we will draw on these when we look at the work of Galliano and McQueen. Firstly, 
there is the conflict between woman as the source of male fantasy and objet art on the one hand, and on the other, her experience as other, as other or an, as another jouissance. Secondly, the duality of fashion that sees it concealing a lack that at the same time turns the body into the focus of desire. Now both considerations will be shared between the work of Galliano and McQueen um, and a more detailed dialogue with avant-garde couture and psychoanalysis will, I think, provide us with new ways of looking at both their work. Now before I do that, I think it might be helpful at this stage to look at the design philosophies of Galliano and McQueen in terms of how they see women, how they see desire, how they see feminine sexuality. And these two quotes, I think, are really quite interesting. Um, on the one hand, you have Galliano saying, um, men won't have to see women wearing his gowns and think, I have to fuck her. Alexander McQueen wants men to look at women wearing his gowns and think, I wouldn't dare. And I think they're quite interesting approaches to, to fashion. Galliano offers an allegory of the constitution of woman as what Lacan calls objet art, the object of desire for man that has actually nothing to do with woman herself. Objet art is woman's stand-in, it's her body double, if you want to think of it like that. Um, that Galliano's work appears in museums as much as it's worn would indicate that this particular form of couture acts as woman's ambassador. Um, it, it allows her to, to, to represent herself. Now, simultaneously, his work also alludes to a corporeal jouissance, to a particularly feminine sexuality that is rapacious and destructive. It offers a duality of the symbolic order and the interjection of the real embodied in every sense of the word in couture fashion. Galliano, far more than other designers, plunders cultural and sartorial history for inspiration for his work. And in doing so, he self-consciously creates a relationship with the past that allows the ghosts of the past a voice in the present. This historicity that we see at work in Galliano's collections is rather more, I think, than mere playfulness or postmodern intertextuality. I see this as a paradigm of the avant-garde. McQueen also offers a duality, but he's concerned with the operation of fashion on the surface of the body and the way it, on the one hand, conceals the lack that is at the heart of human subjectivity, in psychoanalytic terms, and concurrently turns the body into the coupure, um, the gap that marks the aim of desire. McQueen's work is the manifestation of the paradox at the heart of couture, whereby the body is awarded two contradictory meanings at one and the same time. And the operation of couture on the body is concerned with what is sayable and what is not sayable. Now, arguably, the success of these two couturiers emanates from their ability to maintain these irreconcilable contradictions and these paradoxes in their work 
Um, and it's not just couture, but it's also human desire itself that is founded on these paradoxes. Now, where they differ is the extent to which they obey or resist the structural logic of um, ideas about sex and ideas about desire, particularly as it pertains to the feminine. Now I'll move on and talk a bit about um, some of their work now and try and draw out some of these ideas for you. Um, this is from um, Galliano's Autumn Winter 2004 5 collection for Christian Dior. And it's one of three gowns that were displayed at the Golden Age of Couture exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in 2007. Now this exhibition, I don't know if any of you went to it, but this exhibition accepted largely without question the model of femininity set out by Dior and by Charlesworth before him, and it suggested that Galliano was, by the inclusion of his work, um, it suggested that Galliano was the heir to this creative legacy. Now, this, the collection from which this gown comes was um, a pastiche of monarchical allusions, and the dress in the exhibition has resonances of both the new look from the 1950s and also the Belle Epoque. It is, if we look at this piece, we can see that it is elaborate and restrictive in equal measure, with strategically placed embroidery to emphasize and visually enlarge the breasts. There are ruches on the hips to add width. Um, and they also make the already restricted waist appear even smaller. The floor length tapering skirt is tight to the knees before flaring out into a fishtail. Um, and this will almost certainly restrict physical motion. The overall effect is a burlesque of the female body that emphasises a presumed naturalness that is in fact nothing of the sort. This, this naturalness is in the same mould as the naturalness of Dior's new look in that it artificially emphasises the physical aspects of a woman's body that are different to a man's her hips, her breasts, etc, etc, in order to suggest the difference is both inevitable and also, crucially, anatomically defined. The cloak that's worn um, with the dress is absolutely enormous. Um, it looks like she had, she's carrying an armchair on her back. The, clo the cloak is massive and it's a cartoon almost of exclusivity and wealth. Um, it's also a parody of the trailing garments that are worn by British monarchs on state occasions, um, replete with ermine trim and sleeves so large that they render movement of the arms almost impossible. The model's hands seem so dwarfed by the sleeves of the coat that they seem more a part of the dress than her body. Um, and this effect is only enhanced by the fact that her hands, I don't know if you can see them, her hands, they're directly on her waist. Um, her hands have been painted the same colour orange as the embroidery on the dress. Now, this garment follows the couture tradition started by Worth and continued by Dior in particular, 
of fashion imposing itself on the female body. It quite literally fashions the physical form of woman and in doing so constitutes itself as the visual manifestation of her femininity. The woman herself doesn't actually exist here. She's revealed only through the garment that shapes and articulates her. And by shaping and articulating her in a simulated approximation of naturalness that is in fact entirely artificial, the garment intercedes in her subjectivity. And by inceding in her subjectivity, it presupposes a limitation or a failure of some sort on her part. She's lacking, she's incomplete according to this garment. The garment represents her as a gap to be filled or more accurately covered. She then becomes objet A, as I mentioned earlier, the cause of desire. Now th this garment was selected from a field of thousands for display in the prestigious halls of the Victorian Albert Museum can be seen as evidence of the success with which it articulates femininity. It acts as woman's ambassador, but in such a way that the woman herself is left behind. The constitution of woman as objet art takes place through the reinscription of her body, whose original form is deleted and replaced by couture creations. The paradox of couture is that it can enact both impossibilities both impossible of the feminine at once, though. Um, the experience of another jouissance and the constitution of woman as objet art are in no way mutually exclusive. The excessiveness of this particular creation, in terms of the sheer volume of fabric that's used, the opulence of the fabric and the embellishments throughout the garment offer um, a paradigm of uh, the symbolic understanding of, of excess. More importantly though, it's an excess that is contingent upon the female body for its realisation. This excess can only happen as a result of the female body. It can come into being only through being worn. Its shape, its materiality would not exist without the wearer. On the hanger, this would look like an amorphous mass. You would have no idea what it was if you saw it on a hanger on a rail. It is not a challenge that occurs in a museum display, but when the garment is in the act of being displayed on the woman's body. This corporeal display taking place literally on the woman's body allows us to see the excessiveness of the gown and it implicates the gown as an instance of feminine jouissance. The second pair of images I would like to look at, um, the one on the um, left is from the Susie Sphinx collection. These were um, from John Galliano's own label. They weren't his work for Dior. Um, we have the Susie Sphinx and then a year later we have Cabaret. They were very, very similar collections in many regards. The Susie Sphinx collection, um, that dress would be a fairly straightforward cocktail dress were it not for the fact that the dress is cut so low that the breasts are exposed making it pretty much unwearable under any usual set of social circumstances. Breasts generally are covered up 
not exposed. Underneath the dress and made to go with it is a painted flesh coloured net body stocking that covers the entire body um, and it makes the body look tattooed rather than clothed. The effect of tattoos is to eroticise and destabilise the human body and there's a suggestion in this creation that Couture's interface with the body has the potential to be as deviant and as erotic as tattoos. The painting on the body stocking is of, you may not be able to see it from here, um, I'm going to put all this on my blog so you can have a look at the images properly if you want to, um, but the, um, the painting on the body stocking is of delicate Art Nouveau style floral designs and pinks and reds and golds. There is um, a top hat wearing um, head of a Victorian gentleman, and that's apparently John Galliano himself, and clearly visible on the upper right arm. And above that there is also a skull, also in a top hat. The fashion historian Caroline Evans has pointed out the similarities between um, the painted body stocking worn under this gown and the painted body of Gustave Moro's dancing Salome from 1876. And she's argued that there is a correlation between the avant-garde painting of the fin de siècle and um, Galliano's work. These themes also appear in um, his 98-99 collection Cabaret, um, featured elaborate cocktail dresses, vertiginous heels, uh, feathered headdresses. They all evoke the decadence of the Weimar Republic and the hedonistic knights of Cabaret Voltaire. The green dress from this collection is metallic, translucent and embellished. And the design, paradoxically, is to expose the body it ostensibly covers. As with the Susie Sphinx dress, it's cut to expose the wearer's breasts. And it could be said that actually the exposure that is being displayed by the model, rather than the dress itself, so this sense of exposure then that we get from the dress is actually exacerbated by the fishnet tights that the model is wearing. Um, these fishnet tights are, they're, they're rent, they're torn, um, and fishnet tights themselves are at best an orderly mass of holes. So the combined effect of all these exposures, the, the the, the, the cut of the dress, the, the holes and the tights, the fact that they're fishnets to start with. Um, they have the, these legitimate and illegitimate holes that expose the body. Um, this confuses the purpose of clothing. Um, the point of clothing is assumed to be to cover the body. And as Edmund Burglar assumed, we could, it covered the lack at the heart that is at the centre of human subjectivity. Um, a purpose, it could be said, that was described in the Judeo-Christian myth of creation when Adam and Eve first felt the need to cover up. And that's been central to our understanding of the purpose of clothing. Here, Couture takes it upon itself to subvert that myth, even as it ostensibly adheres to it. It is at once a veiling and an unveiling of the body and a positing of a corporeal discontinuity that flags up the contrivance of what we think is the eroticism of women clothed. The garment 
creates a discontinuity. And this does, discontinuity acts as a marker of the delimitation of the body and the location of the constitution of eroticism as being on the surface of the body. At the same time as it acts to cover the body and act as its interlocutor to speak for the body. Now the green dress, like much of Galliano's work, is a prime example of the paradox of Conture, of its capacity to embody two opposing suppositions at once without either of them cancelling the other out. More than this though, it demonstrates the defining principle of fashion, that fashion is more than, that fashion is clothes plus, that fashion is clothes with an addition. Fashion is in fact excess, it's the supplementary. Now what form the excess of fashion takes varies, but in the case of Galliano and indeed Dior before him, it is generally male fantasies around objet art. A Galliano gown will constitute a woman as objet art, as I have shown, but it does more than that. Not only does it constitute a woman as objet art, It also, um, by acting as the female body's interlocutor, as, as the female body's ambassador, if you want, um, by articulating the feminine in ways that are easily accessible and understood within the terms of the symbolic, um, we find that we have a problem. Galliano's response to the Freudian question, was will das wie? You must excuse my dreadful German accent. Um, what do women want? Is one that is marked at best by a fundamental misunderstanding of women and at worst um, by misogyny. Now even um, Galliano's biographer, Colin McDowell, who writes very enthusiastically about Galliano, um, he commented, um, and this is a quote from a, a biography of John Galliano, he said, um, bringing echoes of hookers, geishas, hostesses and opium dens, John, we are told, loves women, but it is not easy to avoid the thought that within that love lurks a fear which must be laid to rest with pastiche, or even more compelling, the suspicion that it is a love so intense it also encompasses a degree of hatred. There's the suggestion implicit in these three Galliano gowns that we've been looking at, that feminine sexuality is accessible and available, and that it's dependent, moreover, on the desiring male subject for its realisation. The negation of the woman is the inevitable outcome of structural obedience to the symbolic, an obedience to which Galliano apparently unquestioningly adheres. Unfortunately for Galliano though, the feminine can never only be objet art. The feminine by definition resists being objet art and despite his best efforts, conscious or otherwise, corporeality and feminine jouissance inevitably force their way through, they interject in his work in ways that disrupt the straightforward projection of masculine desire. And thus we see in John Galliano's work, the asymmetric impossibility of sexual relations is maintained. Now, if John Galliano's work has been seen as the acme of, um, I suppose, establishment, 
couture and it's appeared in museum exhibitions as evidence of its cultural legitimacy. Um, Alexander McQueen's work quite conspicuously is not. McQueen, in this regard at least, is very much the antithesis of John Galliano. His work is unequivocal in its disruptive potential. It speaks of an unspeakable cruelty and a sexuality that is at once both horrific and terrifying. Now the first piece of um, example of McQueen's work I want to talk about comes from his Eshoo collection from autumn winter 2000-2001. Um, this was inspired by the Yoruba tribespeople of West Africa. Now what's interesting about this creation is its explicit savagery. The earrings and the necklace are oversized and tribal in appearance, but what's particularly striking about this image is the spiked mouthpiece that was designed for McQueen by the jeweller Sean Lane. Um, and this presses against the model's lips and holds her mouth open. Um, and this is open to a number of interpretations. Firstly, it's reminiscent of bodily distortions created by body ornamentation of non-Western tribal cultures. Um, although clearly this is far too impract impractical to have any direct design antecedents from this area. The mouthpiece is also a little surgical in appearance. Um, you can imagine your dentist trying to get you to wear one of those, although you can imagine also that any patient would protest vigorously at being made to wear such a contraption. There's also the hint of the metal frames that are used in BDSM sexual practices that hold the wearer's mouth open and that function as a very effective gag, preventing any sort of utterance. Now by staging the artificially enforced impossibility of speech in a high-profile fashion show, I suggest that McQueen is foregrounding the impossibility of femininity articulating itself. Now, it's impossible to say whether McQueen is doing this deliberately or not. Um, in an interview in 1996, he talked about his sister having been the target of domestic violence. And that may translate into a personal interest in the position of femininity in the symbolic. And that may then be manifested in his creative output, whether consciously or otherwise. Um, that's speculation on my part, and I, I will concede that. Um, but what we can see here is that the woman quite literally cannot speak for herself. The dress is her envoy and must speak for her. Now where Galliano um, in this process positions woman as objet art, with McQueen he positions it as a form of protest and resistance to the positioning of woman as objet art. Galliano duplicitously affords the wearers of his garments at least the illusion that they can speak. McQueen is a lot more honest. He proposes that they cannot speak. Of course they cannot speak. And this muteness is rendered unequivocally on the surface of the body, on the mouth, to be precise, with the brutal spikes looking, giving the appearance that they are piercing the model's lips. This makes her snarl. She's snarling. Object R does not 
generally snarl in a threatening way. Object R is an altogether more acquiescent figure. Now what's also note when we consider the lip spikes in this image is the erotogeneity that they represent. They draw attention to one of the body's margins or borders and they clearly indicate in clear visual terms the, the, the coupure, the gap, in this case the mouth, that, that provokes desire by making the body erotic. Now curiously though, piercing the flesh, as these spikes appear to, this creates a new coupure, a new gap, which augments the original. And it institutes a cut, a gap, in the very bodily feature by which this human subject is recognised, which is the face. Now, Galliano's design philosophy couldn't be more different from John Galliano's. But Galliano wants men to desire women clothed. Men, McQueen wants women in his designs to invoke fear, to be so fabulous he wouldn't dare lay a hand on her. Now, why not? What is this untouchable fabulousness? I suggest it's the castration threat, the slipping of the veil of femininity that is couture to reveal the terrifying maw of castration. The yellow clay covering the model's face and hair in this collection compound this sense of violence and suggest a primitivism that will readily offer an affront to any notion of civilised dress, where fashion is usually expected to oblige in some way. McQueen instead chooses to show how it can resist normative social mores by referencing a history that is not concerned with the inexorable rise and rise of civilization, but which instead addresses the destructiveness that that civilization has wrought during its supposed rise. And with themes, with its resonances of the violence of European colonialism, this collection raises themes that McQueen has been preoccupied with in other collections, most notably um, his early collection Highland Rape from autumn winter 95-96. Um, that was his first show under the auspices of the British Fashion Council at London Fashion Week. And the title of the connection, collection is not concerned with rape as a sex crime, it's instead concerned with the rape of Scotland by England during the 17th century. And like Eshu, with its post-colonial concerns, it spoke of the aggressivity that lies at the very heart of the human condition. The second piece I would like to look at um, comes from uh, The Hunger, from spring summer 1996. In many regards this is fairly standard McQueen tailoring. Um, he was a superb tailor, the cut of his clothes was immaculate. The red satin pencil skirt and the grey impeccably tailored jacket offer a very normative version of fashionable dress but that is immediately subverted by the perspex breastplate underneath it. I don't know, yeah, you can probably see some little brown marks on, on, the, on the breastplate there. Um, they are, in fact, um, they, they look like um, internal organs, um, but they are, in fact, um, worms. They're earthworms that have been sandwiched between the body and the, um, and the breastplate. They look like they could be the intestines of the wearer, um, if you want to think of it like that. Um, they're also ind indicative, though, of the desecration of the body in the grave. 
The worms will in time consume the body that they currently ornament and suggest the impermanence of corporeal materiality. The body may interject, as it is doing here, by making a visual appearance through the cut of the sort of clothes more usually associated with co covering it. We see here the body is exposed again. The body may interrupt and disrupt, but it will never establish any permanency for itself. In um, a book called The Return of the Real um, by Hal Foster, that was published in 1996, uh, Hal Foster argues that in the contemporary avant-garde, the truth, such as it is, resides in trauma and the abject. And he reasons that there is disillusionment with earlier artistic strategies and with ideas about the subject, and that these artistic concerns combine with wider social despair over disease and death, poverty, crime, and, and so on, to effectively breach the social contract. A breach that manifests itself in a, more, a kind of mortified subjectivity. And Hal Foster says, if there is a subject of history for the cult objection at all, then that subject is the corpse. And we see in this avant-garde design, the breaching of the social contract, and that's implied in the deathliness of McQueen's designs. What's of particular concern is the implication that the interjection of woman in the symbolic and interjection facilitated by these couture creations is seen by McQueen as an ultimately destructive interjection, where the interjector, the woman, will figuratively but nevertheless inevitably die. The impossibility of woman remains intact. Despite the best efforts of McQueen and indeed Couture in general to create a space for her, what makes McQueen different to other Couturiers is that he figures this impossibility in his creations. Um, he doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist and just constitute the woman as objet art. <coughs> McQueen recognises her impossibility and puts it right up front in his designs. Um, now, the maintenance of the impossibility of woman in the symbolic, in McQueen's work, could be seen as an assault on the figure of woman. McQueen has been accused of misogyny on any number of occasions. I would suggest that this is not the case. I think, and this is just my opinion, but I think that perpetuating woman as objet art, as John Galliano does, is repression of the most tedious and ubiquitous kind. McQueen is of a very different order altogether, and contrarily, by using couture to represent the structural impossibility of the feminine, McQueen is embodying in his work the theoretical point made by the English critic Jacqueline Rose, who said that femininity and feminine jouissance is where otherness utters its, most is, utters its most forceful complaint. Alexander McQueen's work is not an assault on woman, as is commonly thought. On the contrary, by facilitating the display of the feminine as something other than a veiled nothing, he provides a site of resistance in which the disruptive potential of the feminine can make its appearance. That this resistance is doomed to fail is as a consequence of psychic structuring of sexuated difference. 
Um, and that's hardly his fault. Alexander McQueen is not responsible for the psychic structure of the mind. It's not in McQueen's power or anybody else's, for that matter, to make these structures crumble. But what McQueen does do, what makes him such a radical creative figure, is that he offers feminine resistance to such structuring within the terms that are available. Any other sort of challenge would fall outside of the structure and be little more than psychosis. McQueen avoids this and instead he renders possible what's usually impossible, a presentation of feminine resistance to the symbolic order. Now the final piece I would like to look at from McQueen is from his collection called La Poupée, which is spring summer 1997. This was um, another controversial collection. McQueen had lots of controversial collections. Um, and here we can see a, spread, a, a square metal frame that is attached by manacles to the model's upper arm and thighs. And you can imagine the jerkiness and the artificiality of the movement that this piece will provoke in the wearer. In a sense, she's like a doll being walked along the floor by a child's hands. Um, on the one hand, it's no different really to the artificiality of movement provoked by other more pedestrian items like stiletto heel shoes. Learning how to walk in stilettos, for instance, is quite an interesting experience. Um, capes, which restrict the movement of the arms, for instance. Um, but what this piece does is it foregrounds the artificiality of the movement, where one could reasonably be expected to learn how to walk in high heels if you wanted to wear them, or to find coping strategies for the restrictions placed on the arms by a cape. If one wished to wear these items, um, the likelihood of finding a coping strategy for the wearing of this metal frame is somewhere between slim and non-existent. One will never learn to walk in a natural looking way while manacled to a metal square. Now what's exceptional about this creation in couture terms is that it quite literally frames rather than covers the body. As with the clear perspex breastplate that we were just looking at, um, the body appears in the gap. The gap is created by the garments themselves. The chainmail dress that the model's wearing here um, is itself a series of gaps. And in this regard, it can be seen to address many of the same concerns as Galliano's green dress that we were talking about earlier. Where it departs from Galliano, though, is in the cruelty that is invoked by the exposure of the body through the design. McQueen here, is, he seems to be staging a brutality of feminine experience, one in which the usual constitution of woman as objet art by couture is in fact framed by a violent corporeality that threatens the very structure of the constitution of woman. Here, the violence of castration is writ large, and on the body too, by clothing um, that more usually veils or covers or screens off. The gap between the body and the clothing, and the body and the self, this gap that's usually denied by couture, 
with its taxonomy of completeness and, and wholeness, um, this is exploited in creative terms by the avant-garde. Now, it's not unique to McQueen, in fairness, although arguably he is its most high-profile exponent in fashion design. We also see it most memorably um, in the work of a French performance artist called Orlon. I don't know if you've heard of Orlon. She, um, Orlon would undergo um, cosmetic surgery um, and it would be filmed and she would remain conscious and she would give commentary on the process of undergoing cosmetic surgery while it was happening. Um, and writing about um, Orlon Harveen Adams has suggested, and I want, I want to read you quite a lengthy quote because I think this is, this is quite interesting. And Parveen Adams has said, The emptying out of the place of the object collapses the distinction between inside and outside, a distinction which is a regime. A mask, in the very associations which it calls up, suggests a face behind the mask. What it does not imply is what is relevant here, a gap. Her transsexualism, with its implants, is not concerned to move from one sex to another sex, but to transform the confident existence of one sex. The imaginary completion of the body image towards the gap in representation, which disfigures sexual difference. It doesn't deny it, rather it shows the co-presence of the phallic and the castrated in the real world that insists are exclusive of each other. And this belongs not to psychosis, but to artistic labor. And the framing of the conflict of coexistence of the phallic and the castrated that exists in the contradiction of femininity is McQueen's visual reiteration of Lacan's famous and very provocative statement, there is no such thing as a sexual relation. It represents, in couture terms, um, the asymmetry of desire and the contradictions and the splits of feminine sexuation. Now, the purpose of my talk this evening was to introduce you to some of my ideas about fashion and psychoanalysis and show why and how they can be brought together and to give you some examples of the sorts of things that happen when we look at fashion within a psychoanalytic frame. And I do hope I have succeeded in that aim and I would welcome feedback either in the Q&A session this evening or else via my blog and I'll be posting the transcript of tonight's paper on my blog. Um, and if you're interested, that's where you will find the transcript. It is my belief that psychoanalytic theory provides us with a set of interpretive possibilities that have a wider applicability than the operation of the human mind. These interpretive possibilities can be brought to bear on a whole range of cultural forms and processes. And while there are well-trodden paths in this area, in film and literature for instance, there are still areas that have been neglected, and these include fashion, graphic novels, and to a lesser extent, photography. Um, I'm of the opinion that a psychoanalytic approach is vital to the study of culture because it focuses on human experience. 
and without human experience there is no culture. I have also found often that the more difficult or challenging the cultural form, um, the, the image or whatever it is that you're dealing with, the more difficult or challenging or recalcitrant that image is, the more helpful psychoanalysis is in giving us an answer. Not the answer, obviously, but an answer. It gives us an answer to the questions that are posed by that cultural event, that cultural artifact, that cultural object. Psychoanalysis can illuminate cultural themes and issues in ways that are quite unique. And I hope that my talk this evening <coughs> has given you a flavour of just how illuminating psychoanalysis can be um, when, we, when we use it to talk about fashion. Thank you. Now there should usually be someone from the Frode Museum to take questions, because there's no one here, um, I'll take them myself. If anybody has any questions, please pop your hand up. Stunned silence. Okay, well I'm going to stick around. If anybody would like to ask me anything on a one-to-one -one basis, please come up. I'm happy to talk to you. Um, otherwise, thank you very much for coming and I hope you'll find the blog post and the forthcoming podcast illuminating. Thank you very much.